Welcome to Season 2 of Fracktown Gumshoe, Holy Fits, based on the novels by Deborah Gaskill. Chapter 2 After Father O'Malley left with Bridget, I sent Mary Margaret down to Lupe's, the Mexican restaurant downtown, for some lunch for the two of us. As we enjoyed the day's special of steak tacos, refried beans, and rice, Mary Margaret scoured through the county auditor's website, her nearsighted gaze glued against the computer screen. I know the house has been around forever. Some of the old-timers in town said it had some local history behind it, I said. I leaned back in the waiting room couch, savoring the spicy Mexican food, as much as the possibility of a little excitement in my life. It looks like it was built in 1850, so it's really, really old, Mary Margaret answered. It fell into foreclosure about three years ago. It was a private home for ages, then a group home. Gracie says I should call the folks who live there developmentally disabled, but I always call them Mr. Fitzhugh. I waved my hand at her. You and Gracie are too politically correct. Anyway, I know it was a bed and breakfast before it closed. Some of my buddies on the sheriff department told me about some jerk-off juvenile delinquents who threw rocks through the windows to break into the place and spray-paint the walls before the bank got it. It looks like St. Giles bought the place and 50 acres for back taxes about a year and a half ago. I'm going to see what I can find out about this whole mess. See what you can find on Roger Clark, I said. I'm going to bet that moniker was most likely not the name his mother gave him when he took his first breath. In fact... I'll bet that Clark and St. Giles are one and the same. I gave Mary Margaret a few hints on how to chase down the man behind the name, then left to check out the abbey he supposedly ran. I needed to know a little bit about this Benedict St. Giles and the chapel he was allegedly building with Grammy O'Connor's 50 grand. Calling Ma would have to wait, even though she'd sent the case to me. As I drove down Main Street, I couldn't help but think about how somebody like him could get a foothold in a town like this. Who were as likely Marks, besides the poor little old ladies like Eileen O'Connor? Sure, she was an easy con, what with her dementia and all, but she couldn't be the only one, could she? There had to be others who were disaffected by the Catholic Church. My parents and grandparents had heated discussions around the Sunday dinner table when Vatican II took Latin from the Mass and made the priests turn around so they could glare right into my fidgety, little altar boy soul while preaching about filthy sin. There were still some area churches that held Mass in Latin early on Sunday for those who wanted to go, and nobody claimed they were conning anybody. But shit, Vatican II was years ago. You'd think some of this stuff would be a non-issue by now. The church had taken some rough hits lately, what with priests abusing kids and all that shit. None of that happened at St. Rita's, but it still caused a lot of folks to question their faith. Maybe St. Giles was targeting them too. Nothing like a major world institution getting rocked to its core to provide an opportunity to defraud people. It was about 10 minutes outside of town when I got close to the address Father O'Malley gave me. At the bend in the road, I could see the basic frame of a chapel. It had one stone steeple completed, with an anorexic brass cross reaching for Giles' version of heaven, and a stone wall beginning at either side. Back off the road, behind the chapel frame, was a big, old white house with pillars where St. Giles' deluded followers, including Eileen O'Connor, allegedly lived. I pulled up beneath an arch built across the driveway that read St. Matilda's Abbey. St. Giles must have built the arch recently. The black paint on the ironwork 
looked shiny and new. The house looked good again, too. The windows were replaced. The paint was new, and no doubt money that came from more suckers than just Grammy O'Connor was spent to put on a new roof. Through my binoculars, I could see what looked like a group of nuns wearing habits and whipples like I'd seen in my childhood, working with hoes in a vegetable garden out behind the barn. There were a few cattle grazing in the pasture nearby. Crops of one kind or another surrounded the farmhouse and the barn. Purple flowers grew along the porch rail. In the field north of the farm driveway, a monk in a black robe sat on a tractor pulling some sort of farm machinery. Gray hair peeked out from beneath his wide-brimmed straw hat. A second tractor with a similarly dressed young monk at the wheel followed close beside with a flatbed trailer. As the green squares came out of the bailing machine, young men stacked them on the flatbed. They were close enough to the road for me to get their attention. I got into the excursion and pulled up next to the group. I stepped from the truck and leaned on the fence. Hey! I hollered. The older monk stopped his tractor and jumped down. Once upon a time, I'm sure Benedict St. Giles had movie star looks, and those were no doubt how he lured in the suckers that followed him. But those looks were fading, and fast. His gray hair made him look to be in his late 40s, so he was younger than me. He had a placid look on his face I'd only seen in the faces of fundamentalists, the over-medicated, or the happily drunk. He walked towards the fence like he was approaching the altar. Hello, my son, he said. He extended a soft hand from inside the wide sleeve of his robe. I'm Abbot Benedict St. Giles. How can I help you? I leaned over the fence to shake his hand. I'm uh, Niccolo Fitzhugh of Fitzhugh Investigations. I've been hired by the family of Eileen O'Connor. They believe she's living here. St. Giles smiled benevolently. Ah, yes. She goes by Sister Cecilia now. She is here. And she is fine. But she's become contemplative. Her day is spent in prayer for those who have need of intercession. She speaks to no one but God. I beckoned the abbot closer with my finger. He leaned in and with one hand, I grabbed him by the shoulder. The meathead stacking the hay bales yelled and jumped from the wagon. St. Giles, his face placid, waved them back. It's fine, gentlemen. It's fine. God will protect me. I pulled his face closer to mine and stared in his pale, snake-green eyes. He better, because I'll kick your ass if you don't answer my questions. St. Giles' face hardened, but he didn't pull out of my grasp. You conned a poor little old lady out of fifty grand, didn't you? I asked. Sister Cecilia made a donation out of her committed desire to serve our holy community. Bullshit. No dementia patient forks over that much cash if she wasn't conned into it. I assure you, Sister Cecilia is quite lucid, and this was a conscious choice. We deeply appreciate her gift. It will allow us to expand our godly work. I pulled the abbot closer to my face. His breath smelled sour. I want to see Eileen O'Connor. I want to see her now. That is not possible, Mr. Fitzhugh. I've told you. She's living a life of prayer. She's taken the veil. Fuck you and this load of shit you feed people, I hissed. I know you're not a real priest, and there's no way that grandmother could become a nun. I know this outfit of yours is not part of the Catholic Church. We are not part of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. St. Giles was calm. He'd sung this song before. 
the Roman church has strayed from its original roots and chosen a path of sin and avarice. We are seeking to return the church to where God and St. Peter meant it to be. I let go of him. St. Giles stepped back and brushed the wrinkles from his robe. You're a con man. I know it. Eileen O'Connor's family knows it. Father O'Malley knows it. And the real Catholic church knows it. St. Giles lifted his chin arrogantly. I would beg to differ with you, Mr. Fitzhugh. The church is full of pedophiles and thieves. I myself am a victim of the former and have attempted to expose the latter, but with limited success. God has called me to lead a community which will bring the church back to what he intended. My aim is to expose Satan and where he lives inside the church. I want to see Eileen O'Connor, and I want to see her now. That is not possible, as I have said. There was a violence behind each clearly enunciated word. If I swung at this fake priest or pulled my Glock from inside my jacket, the hay-baling meatheads and no doubt St. Giles himself would be on me like white on rice. What St. Giles said was true. Eileen O'Connor was an adult and on the most superficial level, allowed to make her own decisions. Any adult could practice their religion the way they saw fit, even join some joke church if they wanted to. Any adult could also give away their money any way they wanted to, despite what the family might say. But the dementia put a different spin on things, as did the claim that Eileen had taken off a life of intercession and prayer. That stunk, plain and simple. Father O'Malley was right. Grammy O'Connor had been conned. From what I could see, she was possibly being held against her will. Beating the shit out of this matinee idol priest would only make it worse. I'm going to leave now, but I'll be back tomorrow with Miss O'Connor's family. We will see her and we will talk with her privately. At that time, if Miss O'Connor wants to stay here, then we will walk away. St. Giles adjusted his robes and shot me a nasty look. You may come back tomorrow, Mr. Fitzhugh. All are welcome here, even skeptics of what we're trying to achieve. Whether or not Sister Cecilia chooses to speak to you is entirely up to her. We'll see about that. I drove back into town ruminating on what St. Giles was allegedly trying to do. In many ways, the residents of my Rust Belt hometown could be ripe for the picking by a con man like Giles. Fawcettville's ethnic neighborhoods were tied to their own particular church. The flats down by the creek that ran through town was home to the Krauts, the Poles, and the Hunkies. The Mix, like my Fitzhugh grandparents, had their own six-block slice of F-Town heaven in the Galloway neighborhood, where Bridget and Mary Margaret lived. The Italians had a neighborhood called New Tivoli, where I grew up. Most of those neighborhoods all attended St. Rita's, the oldest and largest Catholic church in town. There were a few others, St. Charles Bormio, our Lady of Grace, but St. Rita's was the front runner in the Holy Show attendance race and had been for years. In University Heights, where Grace and I lived, there was a sprinkling of Methodist, Episcopal, and Lutheran churches, attended mostly by the largely lily-white and over-educated professionals in town. We weren't members of any of them, but we could be counted on to show up and fill the gaps in the Fitzhugh pews on Christmas and Easter. I was driving through Tubman Gardens now where the blacks and the Mexicans lived in houses tinged gray years ago when the now-faded nearby industrial area meant jobs and a chance at the middle-class life. While most blacks attended St. John AME Church near the Tubman Gardens Park, 
A lot of the Mexicans attended St. Rita's Spanish Mass held at 7.30 Saturday nights, or the storefront Pentecostal churches that sprang up and quickly died in the abundant strip malls and the shells of downtown buildings. I passed the rusted hulls of former factories and the walls of discarded tires, letting Eileen O'Connor slide from my mind. Instead, what kept me in this town all these years and kept me part of the old neighborhood filled my heart. There was nothing that bored me about Fawcettville. I'd always loved it, from the abandoned steel mills to the ethnic neighborhoods that, when I was a kid and throughout my time on the Fawcettville police force, defined the activities, both good and bad, that happened there. And why not? I'd been raised in the only Irish-Italian family in the predominantly WAP enclave of New Tivoli, the son of Fawcettville Police Sergeant Aidan Fitzhugh and Maria Gallione Fitzhugh. We all called each other those names. I was Nick the Mick all throughout high school, until puberty hit and I was finally able to beat the shit out of anybody instead of the other way around. From then on, I was just Fitz. I was halfway through my four years as an Air Force security policeman before learning terms like WAP, Dago, and Mick were not terms one used in polite society. But then again, polite was never my strong suit. What unified the lower from the upper class who lived in their new houses on the hills above downtown was not our old clapboard houses and tiny yards, but the fact that we'd all been through the same things. My generation saw our fathers come back from the war, the Korean War, or the big one, as my father, older than most of my friends' parents, called World War II. Those strong, silent men came home from war to take jobs in the blast furnaces and steel mills that gave the community jobs, and thanks to local 723 of the United Steelworkers, living wages and pensions. Our father sent us to college when they could afford it, or we got scholarships so we wouldn't spend our lives in those same mills, grabbing at our elusive piece of the American dream. They were proud of those back-breaking jobs, true, but they also wanted better for my whole generation. Dad wanted us all to have desk jobs, and for the most part, my siblings did. My oldest brother, Aiden Jr., we called him AJ, is a loan officer at a bank downtown. Randy, the brains in the family, commutes to Akron to work as a chemical engineer. Mateo and my youngest brother, Polly, both teach school. My oldest sister, Chrissy, got knocked up halfway through her sophomore year at Youngstown State, so she stayed home to raise the litter of good Catholic brats while Arnold, the guy who got her that way, married her and wrenched on cars for a living. Later, Chrissy went back to community college and got a job at a travel agency downtown. Katie, the wild girl, got her nursing degree and left Fawcettville for a couple of years, but came back with a husband named Pete and stayed to raise her own houseful. And just like Ma, their lives revolved around St. Rita's. But then, things changed. The steel mills closed, the unions lost their clout, and pretty soon, Fawcettville entered another death spiral, at least for those who lived at the old neighborhoods. Then, for a long, long time, everyone you knew from the mill was asking, do you want fries with that? Because those were the only jobs anyone could find. That is, if they stayed in Fawcettville. I didn't, not at first anyway. Me, I was the wild son. Too wild to wear the shirt of Ma's choosing. The one with a clerical collar. After screwing a KSU football coach's wife and losing my scholarship, I joined the Air Force. I found my first opportunities at Lackland Air Force Base, Texas, where I continued chasing all the wrong kind of tail and shot my military career in the ass. This time it was the wing commander's wife. After the Air Force, 
I came back to Fawcettville to serve 20 years on the PD, just like Dad. And when I could keep my pecker in my pants, I was damn good at it. I wasn't always a horny son of a bitch. Before I met Gracie, there was one woman I thought about being faithful to. No bigger than a minute, and right out of the academy when she signed on to the Fawcettville PD. Young, pretty and blonde, almost too tiny, I thought, to walk upright with her duty belt on. I was in my mid-thirties. She was 22. I'd been on the force for about 10 or 12 years when she was assigned to work with me. I tried not to say her name, much less think about her, but she would always be the one that got away, even though Gracie would always be the one I'm glad I ended up with. I had a lot of memories from Fawcettville. Until we split up, that girl was one of the best of them. At least it was never boring, and I learned a lot here about being a cop and about being a man. It might take everything I've ever learned as a cop to get Eileen O'Connor away from St. Matilda's Abbey and the con man who separated her from her money. I turned the corner. I was in the area where the downtown began to shift from storefronts and offices to older Victorian houses and a cluster of churches, St. Rita's among them. On my left, I caught a glimpse of cars in the parking lot behind St. Rita's, an FPD cruiser and some somber-looking dark cars. Probably a funeral procession, I thought to myself. It wasn't uncommon for off-duty police to escort them to the cemetery at the edge of town to pick up a quick 50 bucks. The traffic light in front of me turned red, and I came to a stop, giving me a chance to look closer. Wait, is that the coroner's van? The back door of St. Rita's opened up, and Joe Barnes, one of the two detectives on the force, stepped out, along with a uniformed officer and a woman I recognize as the church's longtime secretary. Shit. This doesn't look good. I U-turned the excursion into the parking lot and pulled up alongside Barnes. Fitz! Barnes nodded at me and extended his hand. Good to see you. Good to see you too. What's going on here? I asked. Barnes took the eraser end of the pencil he held and grimaced as he used it to scratch between his shoulder blades. Father O'Malley, the priest here at St. Rita's. The secretary found him dead in his office. Please consider a small monthly donation to help us fund the cost of producing this podcast. Make no mistake, we do this podcast as a labor of love, but your support would be greatly appreciated. We've devised three levels of sponsorship, support, and rewards. Level 1 patrons will have their names and locations read on the next podcast. Our Level 2 patrons will receive a copy of Holy Fits, autographed by author Deborah Gaskill. Our Level 3 patrons will receive a complete set of the Fracktown Gumshoe novels. Currently, six books, autographed by author Deborah Gaskill. If you would like to support Fracktown Gumshoe, go to https colon backslash backslash patron dot podbean dot com backslash Fracktown Gumshoe. This episode is narrated by Casey Martin. Fracktown Gumshoe is based on the novels by Deborah Gaskill.